I'm thankful for uh, Pastor Taylor stepping in and filling the pulpit the last couple weeks. Our family was able to get a uh, little bit of rest, a little bit of work. We <clears throat> were able to spend some time camping, which with four children is more, a little more work than rest, but uh, it was lots of fun and made lots of memories. And uh, then we also moved in the process, and we want to Yesterday, we were able to uh, move to our new home. I want to thank you for the many that have helped us to enable that to take place. There was an army of, of guys that showed up yesterday, and so we are thankfully settled into our new house and able to uh, start unpacking uh, further. And, uh, but I'm happy to be back, glad to be back here with you, and excited to open the Word of God with you. As Taylor reminded us, we need to know how to live in a fallen world. And this world continues to show signs every day, the fact that it is indeed fallen. People around us, nations, individuals, are rebelling against the Lord. There is great sin that is uh, taking place around us, and yet, although, as our brother Andy reminded us, we do long for our final home when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom and we are in a place of perfect peace and joy, God in his good and kind providence has chosen for you and I to live today in the here and now in this fallen world. And so we must trust God and live faithfully in the midst of that. And that's what Brother Taylor preached on the last two weeks, living faithfully and trusting God in this fallen world. Well, we're going to continue that theme this morning and considering what it means to follow Jesus in a fallen world. What does it mean to follow Jesus in this fallen world? We need to know how to follow Jesus truly, what true discipleship is. Because there are many people who claim to know Jesus or to follow him, but even as our text will show us today, they may not actually be truly following Jesus, even though they may say they desire to or say that they will. Because you see, we can't follow Jesus on our own terms. We've got to follow Jesus on his terms and his terms alone. And so the question each of us will be confronted with this morning is, is my discipleship true? Is it real? Am I truly following Jesus? And we're going to see this at the end of Luke 9. And so I invite you to turn there in your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to follow, finish up the chapter today. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where our text begins today, is a key turning point in the book, a key turning point in the gospel of Luke. If, you'll, if you've been with us for the last couple of years, you know that chapters 1 and 2 deals with the conceptions and births of Jesus and his relative John the Baptist. Chapter 3, they started their ministries. And in chapter 4, Jesus launches out into what's called his great Galilean ministry. He goes back and forth across Galilee, the northern part of Israel, as he ministers and as he presents himself to the nation, showing himself to be, the, indeed, the spirit-anointed Messiah, the one Israel had been waiting and longing for for centuries. And those that great Galilean ministry, which in the Gospel of Luke is chapters 4 through chapter 9, verse 50, is, covers the first three years of his ministry. 
So by the time we pick up here in chapter 9, verse 51, there's only six months left of his ministry, of his life, until he dies upon the cross in Jerusalem. And so it's here that the narrative shifts in the whole book and, in fact, goes through chapter 19 in which is known as the travel log as Jesus begins to make his way towards Jerusalem for his final sacrifice. So let's read the text together as we see this shift in Jesus' life and ministry beginning in chapter 9, verse 51, 51, reading to the end of the chapter. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would please help us as we approach your word. This is your, the revelation of yourself to us, and we need your spirit to discern it. I pray that you'd be working in each one of the hearts and minds that are listening this morning, that you'd enable your truth to penetrate their hearts exactly where they need it. And Father, may we all be instructed on how to follow Jesus truly this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, from this text, we're going to see four qualities of true discipleship. Four qualities of true discipleship. And the first quality is found in that first paragraph in verses 51 through 56, and it's this. True discipleship is not popular. True discipleship is not popular. And we'll see, again, we'll see this in verses 51 through 56. And as I said, verse 51 marks a significant change in Jesus' ministry. And I want you to look at it again. Look at verse 51. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The days drawing near for Jesus to be taken up, it says. This taken up here could refer to his ascension, being taken up into heaven. That would happen after his resurrection. But I think it references his death that precedes that resurrection and precedes that ascension as well. It's a time for him to suffer and to die upon the cross. That time was soon approaching. He recognized it. He knew it. And so in, 
this, this verse indicates that, that it was drawing near. In other words, there was a set time frame, a set timetable, a set goal for when Jesus would, would, would accomplish this which tells us that Jesus was not operating willy-nilly, that he wasn't just going about his ministry and his life based upon some random circumstances, but there was a divine schedule that Jesus was operating off of. And he knew that the time was coming soon. It was approaching near that he would need to give up his life. Friends, the cross did not happen by accident. It happened according to God's timetable, the divine plan of God. So what does Jesus do? When he knows and he senses that this cr the cross is coming, does he run away? Does he flee? Does he buy some time? Does he drag his feet? Look at what it says, verse 51. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Friends, in the light of Jesus, recognizing what he must accomplish, he pressed forward into the mouth of the lion. Set to set one's face is an Old Testament expression that means to be locked in and to be determined, to not be looking to the right or to the left, but to be set, that his face was set to Jerusalem and he was going to go there no matter what. Nothing could sway him. He was unwavering. He was steadfast. This phrase, to set one's face, I believe Luke is intentionally using to hearken back to Isaiah chapter 50. And we don't have time to turn there this morning, but Isaiah chapter 50 refers to the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And there it talks about the Messiah being obedient to God, trusting in God, and setting his face like flint to go towards suffering. And even as he goes towards suffering, he's going to trust God. God to protect him and to be with him. I believe Luke is intentionally alluding to that verse, Isaiah 50, verse 7, because he is saying that Jesus is that servant of the Lord. Jesus is that servant of Yahweh, the one Isaiah spoke of. He is trusting in God. He is being obedient to the mission that God has given him, and he is marching towards suffering, setting his face like flint to what God has called him to do. Jesus was going to Jerusalem in obedience and in submission to his Father. And friends, we can't miss this. This is one of the defining features of Jesus' messianic qualities, is that he lived in submission to his Father. The Gospel of John brings us out time and time again where Jesus says, I did not come to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And here, Luke alludes to that as well as he tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Church, behold your Savior here. Jesus was no coward. Jesus did not have shaky knees. He did not have wavering conviction. Jesus, in light of what he knew he needed to accomplish, remained steadfast, obedient to his Father, and pressed forward. He went to the cross obediently. Does this not cause us to bow down and worship before him? That our Savior did what was required? 
not because he needed anything out of that, but simply to redeem us, those who were his enemies, those of us who naturally reject him and want nothing to do with him. And yet he went to the cross on our behalf. He was resolved to accomplish salvation, whatever the cost. Only Jesus, when the days would drew near for him, could he set his face and go to Jerusalem on our behalf. And yet, as our Savior went on his courageous mission, he was not welcomed. Look at verse 52. It says, He sent messengers ahead of him, and he, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, we need some background to know what's going on here. This is the first time in the book of Luke that we are introduced to the Samaritans. The Samaritans. And if you're reading the Old Testament, you're not going to find that particular title or phrase. And so you open the page of the New Testament, and all of a sudden you get these people known as the Samaritans. Who were they? Well, they're a group of people that lived in the central region of Israel, around the, the region of Samaria. That you will find in the Old Testament. Samaria. They were a group of people that were not full-blooded Jews, but they were of mixed ancestry. The reason for this is that when the northern kingdom of Israel was punished and exiled, that Assyria, who attacked them, brought in people from other nations, as 2 Kings 17, verse 24 says, and brought them in from other nations, and they landed there, and Assyria wanted them to get mixed up. One of these nations to intermarry because if there's mixed ethnicities within this land, then there's not going to be this ethnic rising, this national identity to say, let's charge against our oppressors. They're all mixed up and they're all oppressed and so they remain in submission. But the result of that was generations of mixed ancestry. And so, over the centuries, the Samaritans there in the middle of the country also changed their religious system. Based upon what was revealed in the Old Testament, they borrowed some of it, but changed some of it. They believed the only scriptures that were authoritative were the first five books, the Pentateuch. The rest of it, they did away with. And they taught that worship was to be performed there in Samaria uh, at Mount Gerizim, not at Jerusalem. And this is exactly the issue that some of you will remember was brought up by the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, as Jesus dialogued with her. And so, you have Jews in the north in Galilee, you've got Samaria in the middle with the Samaritans, and you've got Judah in the south. And so when it came time for the festivals in Jerusalem, a lot of the Jews in the north would have to travel south to go to Jerusalem. And they would have to cut through Samaria or take the long route around and get to Jerusalem. And, but the shortest route was through Samaria. And so there was great animosity between these two groups, between the Jews and the Samaritans. Again, different religious systems, different ethnic backgrounds, and they did not like each other. And in fact, the animosity was so intense that the first century historian Josephus records that when some Jews were traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem through Samaria, that some of them were attacked and murdered by the Samaritans. And so with that as background, you can understand what's going on here in Luke 9. That Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. The Samaritans find out about that, are and they don't want to house this man and his traveling band of men. It says that he sent messengers ahead to try to prepare a room, and they did not receive him. They said, you are not welcome here. 
And notice the specific reason why. He says, verse 53, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. They said, oh, you're going to Jerusalem? Sorry, we don't want anything to do with you. And so as a result of their rejection, as a result of rejecting Jesus and their group, James and John are enraged. These sons of thunder say to Jesus in verse 54, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And you might be wondering, why now? Why do they bring up fire now? Like, Jesus has been rejected other places, and why didn't they suggest fire then? Well, it's because of the Old Testament background here. In 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah the prophet is in this very same region, and he's being attacked by the king's uh, garrisons of his army. And Elijah calls down fire and consumes them right there in Samaria, and the prophet is protected. And so James and John are saying, hey, we're in the region where fire comes down from heaven. And I think it's a good idea because, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the, the greater one. Why don't you call down fire? Ask us, Lord, Lord do, you, do you want to nuke them? Do you, do you want to send an atomic bomb and just utterly destroy them? Now, before we get on James and John's case for going, dude, just calm down. Why are you, like, looking to destroy anybody who disagrees with you? We need to recognize what is behind this request. James and John care about Jesus, and they care about his honor. And they recognize that he is being rejected, and he is being disgraced by not being received. And so, for as wrong-headed as this is, and as we're going to see, Jesus rebukes them. I believe that there is a bit of, of truth in what they're trying to stand up for. They recognize that Jesus was not accepted and they are disturbed by that. I think we could use a little dose of this in our own day. That we would be perturbed, that we'd be angered when the, the glory of Jesus is not recognized. When the honor of Jesus is not recognized. James and John also, you'll remember, they just saw Elijah. So again, talk about uh, Elijah calling down fire. They just saw Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. So they're very much acquainted and oriented with Elijah. And so they asked Jesus the question, should we do this? Believing Jesus could do it if he wanted to. But notice verse 55, he turned, Jesus turned and rebuked them. Essentially telling them, this is not the right action to take. A, a big no. We're not going to send fire down. I don't want you to do this. You shouldn't have asked this. Now, the New American Standard has part of verse 55 and 56 in brackets here. Because many of you have that translation. Need to address this. Most other translations, including the English Standard Version, has it in a footnote rather than bracketed uh, in the text. And the reason for this is that the, the earliest manuscripts don't have those phrases in uh, the, the manuscripts. And so it's agreed by uh, most, if not all, biblical scholars that these were added in later to give some substance to Jesus' rebuke rather than uh, the simple phrase that he rebuked them. But the point is the same. Jesus turns and tells them, no, this is not the time for sending fire upon 
this city. Jesus is essentially saying that now is not the time for judgment. Judgment will come later, and James and John, I will be a part of that judgment, but now is not that time. And so it says, verse 56, they went on to another village. So what's the, what's the point of this account for us? Well, here we have a Savior who is determined to accomplish what God has called him, and yet he is rejected. He's not received or accepted. And therefore, we are reminded from this account that we follow a rejected Savior. We follow one who is not embraced by the world. We follow one who is not warmly received, but is rejected. And we know that he will ultimately be rejected, not just by the Samaritans, but he's going to be rejected by his own. As John chapter 1 says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And so we, who are his followers, we do not follow a man who is warmly embraced by the masses. We don't follow one who is liked by everybody. He was despised and rejected of men. And because of this, friends, we can, be, we can expect to be rejected ourselves. As Jesus says in John chapter 15, he said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Folks, we are servants of a hated master. When we follow Jesus in this world, we can expect rejection. It's not popular to be a disciple of Jesus. There are masses of humanity not going the way of Jesus, and therefore we are reminded here that true discipleship is not popular. It is not going the way of everybody else. But we need to remember that's okay. We're not here to gain the favor of the masses. We're not here to go with everybody else. In fact, Jesus gave us comfort in Luke chapter 6. He said, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to be reviled, to be excluded, to be looked down upon, all on account of Christ. But friends, we are called to rejoice in that day. We are called to leap for joy. Not just accept it, but rejoice that we stand in line with the righteous ones by God's grace. As you reminded earlier this morning, friends, this, this world's not our home. We aren't seeking for our acceptance here. We do not seek the applause and acceptance of the world because the darkness of this world is opposed to the light of Christ. And so if you're going to truly follow Jesus in this life and in the days ahead, you need to be ready to face stiff opposition. You need to be ready to face the opposition that Jesus faced, to not be received, to receive the disdain of this world. I know many of you 
have been facing that, are facing that even now. But be encouraged. Jesus has walked this road already, and he stands with you as you face the rejection of this world. So the first, this text shows us true discipleship is not popular. The second thing we see is that true discipleship is not comfortable. True discipleship is not comfortable. Look at verse 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It says that they were going on the road, verse 57. This continues that, that aspect that we talked about from verse 51, that Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. Luke is continuing that narrative to say he's continuing to march on. He's going to Jerusalem. And as they go, someone walks up to him. I will follow you wherever you, he, you go, he says. Now, this is remarkable in one sense. This man is, is, is willing to step out. He seems to have calculated at some level to say, I want to follow Jesus. And so he goes forward and expresses that, ex that desire. He's made a decision. He's not hesitant. He's not skeptical. He's raising his hand and saying, yes, I'm in. I'll follow you. And this is the place that many people never arrive. Many people follow Jesus, listened to his words, and never actually went in and said, yes, I want to follow you, Jesus. But this man does. He's ready to sign on the dotted line. But Jesus knows his heart, and so he comes back with a declaration in verse 58. And he draws attention to the fact that while animals in the natural world have homes to live in, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests or perches to, to, to reside upon and a place to go home to, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, has no home, has no settled place of residence, has no place to lay his head. Jesus is on the move. He's and even while he's on the move, he's not accepted. We just saw that, right, in the previous episode. That even as he's traveling, he's looking for a place to say, stay. He's looking for a place to lay his head, and he can't find one. This man had wanted to be involved in the ministry of Jesus, but he had not considered the cost that it would take to do so. And what Jesus is highlighting here is that to follow Jesus, true discipleship involves hardship. True discipleship involves hardship. And he's saying there's no way around it. If you're going to follow me, sir, you need to understand the road that I walk. You need to understand the places I go and that I do not have a place to lay my head, that I walk a path of hardship. Are you sure you want to follow me? To follow Jesus is to receive the blessing of God. But to receive the blessing of God does not mean that we always land in comfortable circumstances. Let me say that again. To receive the blessing from God does not mean that we will always land in comfortable circumstances. God's kindness towards his children means he will always take care of them. Right? Jesus highlights that. He says, look at the sparrow. If God takes care of them, so he's going to take care of you. We don't need to worry. We don't need to fret. Don't need to be anxious. God will take care of us. But there is not a promise that he will keep us from suffering, keep us from hardship. And the pages of Scripture are filled with examples of this, right? I mean, just think of the apostles. 
They accepted the call of discipleship from Jesus. They followed him. And then they lived that out after Jesus ascended as they, as they proclaimed the gospel and the, gospel and the church was founded. And their life was not a life of comfort. They, J- James was beheaded. John was exiled on the island of Patmos. Paul and Silas were imprisoned and, and, and Paul gave his listing of all the things he endured in, in 2 Corinthians. You can think of the early chapters of Acts. The Jerusalem church members were pursued into their homes and pulled out and put into jail. And the believers in Hebrews chapter 10, it says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew that they had a better country. Friends, this is the example. And all through church history, those who follow Jesus are not destined to a life of comfort and ease, but they are that's into a life of great joy and blessing from the hand of God. And these are hard words for us, are they not? They're hard words for us in the West. We have lived with great wealth in this country and others. Our standard of living far outpaces the rest of the world. We live in great comfort and ease in climate-controlled buildings. And our economy is built upon great amounts of consumption. People that are at the levers of power, want us to spend more and more money on ourselves to make ourselves more comfortable, and products are produced every day for us to make us feel better. We should be comfortable and happy is the messaging that we receive all the time. But with such affluence in and around us, it's easy to get pulled in by the allure of such consumption. Is it wrong to buy something to make us more comfortable, like a comfortable pillow or better fitting clothes? No, there's nothing wrong in those things. But friends, there's a danger in all of the affluence that our hearts would get pulled after that standard, get pulled after something and draw us in and we desire that too much. You'll remember back in Luke chapter 8 when Jesus talked about the parables of the soils, the word of God landing in different places and different people respond. He said there was a group in which the the seed would land and they would hear the word of God, but as they go on their way, he said, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature, which tells us that affluence and the riches of this world have the ability to choke out to spiritual eternal detriment. It's something we need to be on the watch out for. Affluence of our culture can be deadly. It can spiritually choke us to death. We can easily be in love with our comfort and our ability to get whatever we want. We just tap and it shows up. And yet, to follow Christ, there's no guarantee of comfort. That's what Jesus is saying. We cannot guarantee, hey, Jesus, I'm following you, therefore I should have a comfortable and easy life. He doesn't promise that. In fact, he tells us that we're following one who doesn't have a comfortable place to even lay his head. Now, the text doesn't record the man's answer to Jesus. We don't know what he did. In fact, we don't know that in any of these responses. We don't, we don't have the responses to any of these men in this, this paragraph. But I believe he does that so that you and I who read it have to think about our own response. We're not just thinking about them and his response. We hear what Jesus says, and we have to think about it ourselves. Do you truly want to follow a Savior who has no place to lay his head? Do you really want to be a disciple, a learner, a follower of Jesus who lived a destitute and 
life full of suffering? Because that's what he's calling us to. Will you follow Jesus wherever? Will you forego comfort, ease, and affluence for Christ's sake? Following Jesus is filled with great joy, but that isn't the same thing as being filled with lots of stuff. And we need to separate those two in our minds and hearts. Let's look at the third characteristic of true discipleship. It's not popular, it's not comfortable, and it's not delayed. True discipleship is not delayed. Verses 59 and 60. Jesus said to him, oh, sorry, uh, 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now this, is, this guy is different than the last guy. The last guy walked up to Jesus and volu- volunteered himself. This one, Jesus points out and says, follow me. But this man has something else he needs to do first. Now, to our Western ears, the request to go bury his father sounds strange to us. Number one, we're like, well, yeah, duh, go bury your father. What are you doing here, right? Um, and it's even further strange to us to hear that, that Jesus' response, let the, dead go, let the dead bury their dead. And you're like, wait, what? You know, it, it, it sounds awfully strange to us if we were truly to talk to somebody who says they need to go bury their dad. And are like, yeah, of course, go, go deal with those things. But what's going on here, I think, is not that, that this man is out walking with Jesus and he's saying that his dad is dead back in his living room and he's got to take care of some things before he can follow Jesus, okay? In Jewish society, when somebody died, burial happened almost immediately. They understood the health risks of leaving a body unburied for a long period of time. And so when they w- died, they were buried that same day. And so the fact that this man would be out walking with Jesus, following him, listening to his teaching of any sort, uh, is not likely if his father had immediately passed away. And so there is two possibilities of what this man is saying. One is that in that day, a year after burial, they would go back and they would exhume the body, and the bones would be placed in an ossuary, which is essentially a, a bone box where it would it'd hold these bones, and they'd stick on the shelf within their family grave. And so this man could be saying, hey, I need to wait a year until my father's, uh, the burial process is complete, and I can put his bones in the box, and I can be all done with that. So at least a year's delay here. But I think it's actually a second possibility. You see, in Middle Eastern cultures, It's the responsibility of the children, particularly the oldest son, to bury their father. And this meant he would stick around in order to serve his father until he dies. And it was a way to honor their father. So when he says, let me go and bury my father, he means, as one commentator paraphrased it, said this, means this, let me go and serve my father while he is alive, and after he dies, I will bury him and come. He's saying, I'm going to go and hang out with my father. I'm going to go and and spend time with him while he's still alive. But when he dies, I promise I will follow you. In other words, there's no timetable here. He's not saying, let me go do something real quick. He's saying, let me just serve my dad by waiting until he passes away. Or as another commentator said, in reality, he intends to defer the matter of following Jesus to a distant future. When his father dies as an old man, who knows when? Do you see how this man wants to delay discipleship? He wants to come to Jesus on his own terms. He says, but first. 
Lord, let me first go and bury my father. He's procrastinating in following Jesus. And I just wonder if this describes any of you here today. Are you putting off following Jesus wholeheartedly? Are you telling yourself that you're waiting for a future stage of life, something else to drop, something to change in your life before you fully commit, before you really get serious with your faith? That's what this man is doing. He's saying, yes, I understand it's important, and I will do that, but I'm just going to do it at a future time, when, I, when things are a little more in order, when, when things are better on, on my side of things. Maybe you're in college, and you're just starting your career. You're getting into the workforce, you're working hard, and you know it's good to be in church, you're trying to stay faithful with that, but you know in your heart of hearts that you're not living fully for Christ. That you're kind of going through the religious motions in order to continue to keep things going, but you're not all in. And you reason in your head, you say, well, you know, I'm just getting established in my career. You know, God wants me to work hard, right? And God wants me to establish myself, and, and so I, I need to save up, and, and I need to, to get started in life. So, so this is what God wants me to do. I need to be financially stable. And so once I reach these goals, then I'll get serious about my faith. Maybe you're later in life. You're seeing a career that's going to finish. And you're thinking, you know, once, once I'm out of, the, out of work and I'm retired, and, 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 and I'm, or maybe once the kids are out of the house, then I can really have time freed up, and I can, I can really devote myself to the Lord, and I can give myself to Christ and get more serious about my faith. Friends, these thoughts and promises are made maybe with the best intentions, but they are self-delusions of the greatest kind. To think that we are someday going to change and be different and actually kick it into a higher gear. We must begin as we wish to go. As we are today, most likely is how we will be tomorrow. We are setting habits in our lives. Jesus calls upon us to follow him today. Don't wait until tomorrow because you see the house that you build tomorrow is based upon the foundation that you laid today. The path on which we begin our journey is the one that we will finish it apart from a miraculous work of God's grace and do not presume upon God, hey God, you know, change my heart here in 20 years once everything comes together. Listen folks, do not delay in following Jesus. Do not put it off another day. Do not, do not put it off to another stage of life. Think about it today. Today is the day that Jesus is calling you to follow him. Do not put it off. Follow him. You cannot procrastinate when it comes to matters of eternity and it comes to matters of your soul. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. It's the height of presumption to think that there will be a future day that we will be able to turn, a future day that we will be able to change. You don't know that. Follow Jesus today. Now to all of you children and young people who are here today, I want you to look up at me, all you young people, okay? You are not too young to follow Jesus. 
you can follow him today. You don't have to wait until you're an adult. You don't have to wait until you graduate from high school. You can follow Jesus today by trusting in him and believing in him for your salvation and to try to follow him and obey him each day. Don't wait. Don't believe the lie that you have to wait until you're a grown-up. Jesus calls even you to follow him today, okay? For all of us, the consequences of delaying obedience to Jesus could be disastrous. And so we need to reckon with the Lord today and not put it off like this man did here. Are you prepared to meet the Lord? Are you prepared to answer whether you are truly following Jesus? Notice Jesus' response in verse 60. He says, And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, some of this, it's, this could mean that Jesus is saying, Leave the spiritual dead, those who are unbelievers, leave the world to take care of trivial matters. Leave the world, the spiritual dead, to take care of the burial things. That could be the case. It could also be the case that it's like a proverbial saying that simply means that issue is not the issue. Leave the dead to bury the dead. Listen, you're, you're, you're diverting the issue. The issue here is what you're going to do with me, Jesus is saying. Jesus says, that's not important. The burial issues are not important. The main issue here is whether you're going to follow me and obey me right now, today. And so he then gives him instructions that he needs to follow in order to show that obedience. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This, this word for proclaim means to share broadly, to spread far and wide. This idea that he needs to go and begin to tell others about Jesus, that Jesus is the, the promised king who has come. He needs to be about the work of Christ. And for us, this reminds us that while there are many important things in our lives, our occupations and our, our, our communities and our families, the gospel must always be on our lips wherever we go. As followers of Jesus, we are proclaiming the fact that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. And so we must always share the message about the excellencies of Christ, no matter where we are, no matter what we, where we go. For how will people hear if we do not tell them? We may change our zip code, we may change our jobs, but we never move away from following Jesus and from telling others about him. Are you delaying your discipleship? Jesus calls you to follow him today. Let's look at the fourth and final quality of true discipleship, and that is true discipleship is not secondary. It's not secondary. The third and final man here in the text Again, offers himself up to Jesus. He says, verse 61, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. By now, we should be clued into the fact that he uses the word first. But first. Anytime someone says, yeah, I'll follow Jesus, but first. That's the problem. And the same is the case here. He says he wants to go and say farewell to his family. Now, like the last request, I don't think this is simple as we typically read it. It doesn't mean, let, let me just go give my mom a kiss on the cheek, and then I'll follow you, Jesus. Please, she's really going to miss me. I really need to say goodbye. Jesus' reply in verse 62 
indicates that for this man to go back to his family would be turning back, would be a return, would be a not following him. And so Jesus knows that, that his mission is not this man's first priority. He sees the man who wants to follow him, but he does, wants to do other things first that take precedent. And so Jesus says in verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now why does Jesus make this assessment? Why is he basically saying, this man is not fit to follow me, this man is not fit to, uh, for the kingdom of God? Well, one reason is that by the time this man comes to Jesus, declaring, I will follow you, Jesus. Remember, Jesus has been traveling around Galilee for three years. He's been making himself known. He's had time to consider. He's had time to talk with his family. It's, it's like this man who's been unemployed for three years. He shows up at a job interview and says, I want the job, but wait, first let me have a month's worth of vacation. And you're like, no, 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 what are you doing? Well, you had time to do this before. You're going to get on, you should get on the job right now. Now's the time for commitment. But I think the second thing that's going on here is that by asking to go home to his family, he, he's asking to take leave from his family. In other words, he's asking, I think, for permission. He wants to go and ask for permission from his father if he can go, which says that he has a higher authority than Jesus. His father and his family has, it takes, it takes a first place in his heart and life. But Jesus sees right through this man's request. He isn't, this man is not fully trusting Jesus. His allegiance is not unreservedly fixed to Jesus. He wants to negotiate the terms. He's still wavering between two options. And so Jesus rebukes him in verse 62. This statement, no one who puts his hand to the plow, is an agricultural metaphor where he's plowing. And if you look back while you're plowing, you're going to make a crooked furrow in the ground. And it's going to be worthless. And these people would have been familiar with this analogy. They're not fit to do his work if they are going to continue to look back. Their allegiance is divided. And they're not fit for the kingdom of God. Friends, this is a serious matter like we've been talking about all morning. Jesus calls for his, for total allegiance. And those who get this wrong are not just on Jesus' B team. Oh, I'm on the look back team. No, no, no. There's a difference between following Jesus and not. It's white or black. It's light or darkness. Either you're fit for the kingdom and you follow him or you're not because your allegiance is divided. There's to be no looking back. Jesus is to command our total commitment. What does it mean for us to look back today? When is it that we commit this and we, we put our hand to the plow and look back? It's those who claim to follow Jesus but still remain mired in unrepentance. It's those who claim to follow Jesus but are more devoted to other things, whether job or, or family or finances. These things that control our hearts and lives and govern all of our decisions rather than Christ taking first place. It's Jesus first or nothing. So we need to ask, are we his disciple? Are we fit for the kingdom? And friends, if we have a heart to know Christ and to follow him, we recognize that our discipleship is sloppy at times. It's weak and faltering. We are not the perfect followers of Jesus as we wish to be. And we know that, that Jesus came for sinners who are weak and weary like us. This call is not to 
perfect discipleship in our own strength and our own flesh. This morning, if we recognize, Father, I, have, I haven't followed Jesus as I should, we need to turn to Jesus. We don't turn away and clean ourselves up and get ourselves better. We go to Jesus to get cleaned and to get fixed and to get better. He will transform us. He makes us what we need to be. If we don't have what it takes, we go to him because he gives us what it takes. Friends, he has all the righteousness. He has all the salvation. We just need to go and throw ourselves before him and ask that he would save us and transform us and fix our gaze upon him that we might follow him truly in the midst of everything that comes our way. We go to Jesus that we might be transformed to follow Jesus. And so we need Jesus to set his face for Jerusalem. We need him to go to the cross because you and I need to be transformed. So I ask you, is your discipleship true? Are you truly following the Lord? Don't leave today without answering that question. Talk to somebody next to you. Talk to a friend. Come up. I'd love to talk to you after the service. You need to know whether you are truly following Jesus. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we ask that you would please work in and amongst us. There are so many temptations, so many lures that pull us aside to other allegiances, to other things that we should consume our hearts and minds with, and yet it should be all about Christ. Oh, Father, I pray for those here who have not gone all in with you. I pray that you would please turn them from their sin. Give them a heart of humility and repentance that they may not hold out any longer, but from this day forth may follow you wholeheartedly in the midst of this fallen world. May they choose sides and choose the side with Christ. We need your help, O oh Lord. May you please do this for your namesake. Amen.